Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. What up, what up? Welcome back to the Sneaker History Podcast. Hey, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a couple of our partners. These are some of the folks that help us keep the podcast going, and they've been nice enough to offer some exclusive discounts for our listeners. Now, if you've watched us on YouTube, you all know how we love to display our kicks when we're not rocking them. Sneaker Throne makes sneaker display cases featuring customizable LED lights, drop side cases to showcase your entire shoe, not just the heel, not just the toe, shoe trees, a number of other sneaker-related accessories. You can save 10% on your Sneaker Throne order by using the code HISTORY. You can find a link to Sneaker Throne in the description, or you can just head to sneakerhistory.com slash sneakerthrone, and it will send you directly to their site. Again, that's 10% off with the code HISTORY. Our friends at Prospect are the premier streetwear brand and sneaker boutique based in sunny San Diego, California. One of my favorite places. Prospect is not your typical hypebeast haven, though. They carry classic footwear from brands like Asics, New Balance, Puma, Saucony, as well as local and globally known streetwear brands like Belief, Illust, Rottweiler, Stussy, and many others. Not to mention their own Prospect label and the iconic Just a Kid from Dago collection. If you're a listener of the podcast, you can save 10% on all of your orders from Prospect through their website with the code HISTORY10. That's promo code HISTORY10 at prspctsd.com. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring the podcast or becoming a partner with our community, get in touch with us. You can reach us by email at podcast at sneakerhistory.com, and we'll get back to you with information about how we can partner. And now for today's episode... Georgian trying to shake off starts. Oh, what a move! LeBron James with no regard for human life. Final seconds. Bryant for the win. Iverson against Gill. The crowd on its feet. Allen for the win. The Sneaker History Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of the Sneaker History Podcast. This is a very special episode because we try to make commentary on the news as well as about the shoes. In this particular case, there's probably no bigger newsmaker than Giannis Antetokounmpo because we've just seen the release of his third sneaker, and more importantly, he's in the NBA Finals, so we thought, let's do a deep dive about the man, the myth, the legend, and who better to do it with than the author of the new... Giannis book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP, Mirren Fader, everybody's favorite profiler of basketball Twitter. Mirren, how are you doing today? Oh my gosh, that's so kind of you. I'm, I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you again for joining us. And we just thought this was as good of an opportunity to kind of get to know Giannis, because I think we all have this perception of Giannis's story, but reading your book, and unfortunately, I'm only a third of the way through it, but let me tell you, it's the best third of a basketball book I've read this year. So kudos to you again for the great work. But what we wanted to kind of talk about is when we talk about Giannis, especially with regards to his sneakers, there's this thing that I realized when I was reviewing it from the sneaker perspective, every one of Giannis's sneakers has the sentence, I am my father's legacy. And that was something that was very evident as you 
kind of outlined in the book was the fact that no matter how great of a basketball player he is, his number one priority in life is to be a great son and to be a great big brother. And it's evident because I think all of the brothers had their own colorway of his very first sneaker and we're continuing this motif. But if we are going to tell that story about Giannis, we need to tell the story about his parents. So could you touch a little bit about Charles and Veronica and how they kind of shaped the man that we see today? Yeah, so Charles and Veronica um, came to Greece from Lagos, Nigeria, and you know, one of the revelations in the book is that they actually didn't intend to come to Greece at first. They actually went to Germany first um, because Charles was playing soccer. Um, he got injured. It did not work out. Um, and they thought Greece would be a really good place to be. And um, the neighborhood that they settled in, Sepolia, was, you know, filled with other immigrants, um, also in similar situations. Um, and so, you know, what they did, um, Charles and Veronica, was teach their kids to always work hard, um, always keep a smile on your face, be a positive person, share. Um, the thing was the boys, even though they had so little food and, and items of their own, whenever they had, they gave it to someone else. Um, so, you know, Charles in particular, when you talk about the father's legacy, the boys literally looked up to him. Like he was just their hero. He could dunk, he would play basketball with them, soccer with them. And, you know, they, I, the NASA said, um, you know, he to think he was the most successful man in the world and he didn't have a euro in his pocket. So um, I think that quote really like illuminates what he meant to them. For sure. And I think for me, that was one of the first revelations I got out of the book was I wanted to make the assumption that Giannis and the rest of the brothers had some sort of appreciation for soccer or football, but to know that soccer was his first love and it was inspired directly by his dad. And I think one of the most illuminating things that you had put in the story was the formation. You literally broke it down position by position where Veronica would be the goalkeeper. I think Costas was in defense and midfield. You had the two strikers up top with Giannis and Alex or Giannis and Giannis and Alex was just kind of a mascot cheering everybody on. <laughs> yeah. and that was just fantastic to me because basketball and soccer are my two favorite sports. So just kind of once again, seeing that melding between the two, because as we kind of watch Giannis on the court, there is such a fluidity about his game that initially I was like, okay, this is more similar to, let's say, an ice hockey player skating on the ice. But then as you see him, you see the inspiration of Thierry Henry, who he kind of cited as his favorite player. And it's one of those things where that light bulb goes off in your head if you have experience with both those sports. Like, holy shit, this guy is Thierry Henry in a sense, because just the speed and the grace of which he moves, especially considering his body type, is that of an Olympic sprinter. And the one thing I would say that also is shared between Thierry Henry and Giannis is the fact that they always have this confidence, whereas Henry had it more bordering on arrogance. Giannis is always in complete control of everything. And it was just something that I was like, okay, that kind of clicked in my mind that this is something cool. The other thing I wanted to kind of have you speak a little bit on is Charles's impact as probably Giannis's first coach and that inspiration, because there was that beautiful comparison you had made where I think Charles was explaining to Giannis about the importance of Nelson Mandela and then the spaghetti scene mm -hmm. after that. Yeah. Um, so Charles talked to him about how selfless uh, Mandela was. And, you know, that is really like one of the themes of the story that this book was born out of for Bleacher Report and the book itself is masculinity. You know, what makes a man? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it wealth? And none of those things were apparent 
uh, for Charles growing up with, you know, with Giannis growing up. And so what Giannis learned about masculinity was sacrifice. So the spaghetti anecdote you just alluded to, you know, he, they would have this bowl and he would just say, no, I'm not hungry. Like, you know, I'm going to let my kids eat first. So imagine watching your dad just not eating and, and having a smile on his face doing so, because even though he is suffering tremendously, he wants to make sure his kids are okay. Um, and they learned a lot of strength from him. You know, masculinity has nothing to do with how much you earn. It's how loving you can be towards your family, how kind you can be and sharing with your brothers. And, you know, I think that because Giannis's childhood, you know, he grew up so impoverished. I think people forget that there was a lot of joy. Um, and I really am proud that this book talks about the happiness that Giannis had as a child and the joy that he was able to find within, you know, his family, um, because I think that sometimes that gets lost when people talk about somebody's poverty. But that was all they knew. So it wasn't like every day was just upset. You know, they, they had a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to their parents as well, because to your point, joy has kind of become this loaded term, especially in NBA circles, because KD once famously bristled at the notion of, am I really playing for joy? And yeah, that is readily apparent in this book, because I think it was, might have been Alex, and please correct me, because I know I'm going to butcher my Tim Kupo brothers quotes, but he was just saying something along the lines of, we can't really be upset and fight all the time if we have nothing to fight for, and it's also that fact that you had mentioned masculinity because I know one of the recurring things that I was taken back by while reading your book was the fact that the amount of times Giannis cried and it was just something we are so not conditioned to see from an American athlete perspective because we're told to be very stern very like you can't let any sort of emotional weakness come out and it was refreshing and reassuring to say that okay this guy truly wants it all and that hunger that you mentioned where we almost think of it as a metaphorical comparison point for a drive or an insatiable appetite to actually do it. No, these guys are literally hungry more often than not. I mean, you constantly refer to the theme of like his first meal was always at 11 p.m. And it's something I always kind of think about with regards to, let's say, like a Hakeem Olajuwon who would fast during Ramadan and he wouldn't have that first meal until nighttime. And it was one of those things where he would always play better those week, uh, those games where he was within that month of Ramadan. And I'm wondering if that probably was one of these hidden factors that kind of contributed to Giannis's biggest strength to me, which is his mental toughness. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did in the sense of like, he had no choice but to push forward. um, And that um, this was life, you know, he could not change it. And so you, you work within the confines of your environment, which is exactly what he did. Um, I really liked what you were saying a minute ago about um, the vulnerability of crying, because um, that was actually one of the most interesting parts that I found in my reporting and coming to America for him and, you know, him crying visibly on the bench with Milwaukee and the strength coach, Robert Hackett, telling me that he had to tell Giannis, like, you can't do that. It just it made me feel sad, first of all, for boys in America. Obviously, that's not a revelation. Like, obviously, I know how boys are socialized. And I know that they have to hold in their emotions. But it is fascinating that, like, Giannis didn't grow up with that in Greece. It was normal for him to cry. It was normal for him to be vulnerable. And, you know, to your point about mental toughness, I think part of the toughness is the softness. And mm-hmm. I don't mean softness in a bad way. I, I just think these are the things that make him so unique. You know, when I was reporting this, the last dance was playing and you saw how like vicious Jordan and all these people could be. And it's not that Giannis can't be that because he totally is. But 
he is at his core, like a really nice individual that is very vulnerable and sensitive. And I, I like that about him. And I think that makes him the kind of player he is. Oh, absolutely. And I think I mean this in the most endearing way possible. I think he as much as he gets that mental drive and that athletic competitiveness from his dad, his mom has probably the biggest heart of the entire family. And the thing I kind of was very refreshing to see in the sense was she, like a lot of moms, she has so much of a workload and she never gets tired. And that's kind of like the gift and the curse of being a mom is like, there's always something there and there's always something to do. But if you see your son smile or if you have your little one singing to you, it can give you that extra oomph that you need to go yet another marathon's worth of cooking, cleaning or whatever odd job they could find. Because that was the other thing that I felt contributed a lot to that nomadic lifestyle is just the fact that it was so tough for both of them to secure work considering what the political situation was for immigrants in Greece but for me Veronica kind of comes into the heart of the family and this is something I guess I was going to allude to later on but if I had to ask you who's the heart of the family is it Veronica or is it Alex Antetokounmpo because I know when you wrote the profile you'd kind of called out that Alex is this gritty scrappy player he's going to foul he's going to he's going to be nasty he's going to bite people like is he truly his mother's son or is it still Veronica in terms of the heart of the family I mean I think it's Veronica like she is everything to them. And I really like that the Bucks not only gave Giannis a key to the gym, but Veronica. So like she'd be in there getting his rebounds, like literally in there shooting in the gym, whatever that line is. I yes. am, uh, you know, dating myself, but yes, like it, uh, she was, she was there. Um, and she was always there. And I, I think she's also just like, just a really lovely person. You know, I talked with her for like an hour when I was in Milwaukee mm -hmm. and just sitting across, you know, the sofa from her, you can tell she doesn't really like to talk to people. She doesn't know are strangers because she had to be protective her whole life, but there is a softness and a kindness. And she was actually the one who brought Giannis over that day that I was there and was like, can you talk with her? It was talking with her to get the son's, you know, approval that day. Right. So I, I just think like everything flows through her. Um, you know, of course, Giannis wants to win a championship, but he also just wants to be like a good son and respectful. And I, I just really admire the way that their family, you know, operates. Yeah. And kind of speaking of that family dynamic, it was really funny to me because as I'm reading it, he truly is the extension of his parents. Like he's got the best of both worlds, like every parent wants their kid to have. And it, it reminds me of that cliche we always hear about how, let's say, a point guard is always an extension of a coach. And to me, he has her sweetness, he has her vulnerability, but then he also has his dad's desire to maximize his effort. So it was really nice to kind of see that amalgamation of the two as he kind of becomes the leader of the brothers, because we always kind of assume that the older brother takes charge. And in a sense, the Nassus did that with Giannis. But... As Thanasis gets older and he gets his own friends, you kind of see Giannis becoming the de facto big brother and he becomes a third parent. And I also attribute that to a line that you were using to kind of compare and contrast both Thanasis and Giannis is the fact that Thanasis is a little bit more on instinct. He's a little bit more gregarious, whereas Giannis is more of an introvert and he's kind of a little bit more methodical with how he's moving. And I was reading this to my brother because he's also as big of a basketball nerd as I am. And he goes, she's basically kind of outlining Giannis as the uh, Michael Corleone of the family, whereas <laughs> Anasis is kind of sunny. And is that an apt comparison? Because it does seem that Giannis at all times knows where his brothers are and he wants them to kind of maintain that legacy. Yeah, it is accurate. And 
you know, I didn't realize before I did this how present he was, right? Like, I see that they're close. I see that family means a lot. But, I, like, he's coaching the practices of Alex. He's, like, I mean, he you can't get yeah, like you, you can't, he called him out in that, in that fall league thing. And I mean, you can't get some American older brothers to be that president in present in their baby brother's lives. And this is a person that does not have much free time. You know, he's a global mm -hmm. icon. And so, um, yeah, it's funny because they've always like looked at him like that, even before he was Giannis, he, like right. they were in awe of him before anyone else was because you know, as people will see in the book, Giannis was like literally not a top prospect. He was not somebody that people were like, oh, my God, that guy's going to the NBA. But like his brothers always viewed him with such reverence. I mean, it's ever since the beginning, you know. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because. I think you had probably as poignant of quotes as I've seen in the beginning of the book as like a precursor. And you had the Nigerian proverb and I believe the Greece proverb. And both of those really resonated with me because the fact and please correct me if I'm wrong. The Nigerian proverb is something along the lines of never forget the source of your power. And then if I remember correctly, the Greece one is for 10 years of patience. I'm butchering them, but go ahead. If you remember those off the top of the head and otherwise I can look them up, but it was just fascinating because those are themes that are so prevalent in the book, especially with regards to Giannis's rise from being Giannis's brother to this young guy that inspires NBA scouts from all over the world to come to this tiny location in Greece and just like analyze every move that he has. Yeah, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if you have it in front of you, I think it's the stream never forgets its source or yes. the river. Is it a stream yes. or a river? Is it a I think river? It's a stream. stream. Stream never forgets its source, Nigerian proverb. And then this second one is a Greek one, which is 10 years of pay. No, 10 years of patience, 10 minutes of peace. Yes. Okay. I, you know what? You know how many drafts I went through in this book? Like, I, I, yeah, and been, I feel bad now. I probably violated every interviewer's, like, hey, well, how dare you no, make the. I no, I just wish I, I just wish I remembered it word for word. But yes, I put those as an epigraph at the beginning of the book, because as you'll see when you, you know, when people read it is that the book really dives deep into these two identities, Nigerian side and Greek side, because yep. they are both equally important. And sometimes I think only his Greek side is given importance. So I wanted to make sure that like both were, were in there. And then, you know, the whole as, as it goes on, you see that he is uncorrupted by fame. In fact, yes. kind of uncomfortable with fame. So never forgetting your source, never forgetting where you come mm -hmm. from. It, it goes back to this idea of culture and family and community. And um, and then the Greek one, I just thought, you know, how much patience did this guy have to have? Because he was never destined for superstardom. You know, he went through so much in just tr on the basketball side of things of just trying to, like, develop into the player he wanted to be. So I thought they were good. Um just like scene setters of, you know, what his journey would be like. It was awesome. And to your point, he has to have the patience of a saint because of the fact that yeah. so much of his life is like on the move where he's trying to move any sort of merchandise that he and his family can secure. And that was something I was going to ask you because so much of the mythology behind Giannis is the fact that he's had to his entire life prior to basketball, like be out and about trying to get people to buy whatever he's got in his hands. And it's weird to me because you literally have this natural born salesman because he needed to be that. But we don't see him as much in commercials. Do you think that goes back to that uncomfortableness that you sometimes think he has with fame or is it something else? Yeah, I think like, I mean, 
you know, part of it is just like not wanting to be in the spotlight or the limelight and just being like so focused on basketball and um, just like literally just tunnel vision. I think that's part of it. And he does, he's not somebody that like seeks out attention, like, you know, like people in the tunnel and their outfits. Like if you oh, yeah. told Giannis, he could wear his sweatsuit every day. Like he literally would. Um, and I think, so I think that's part of it. Even when he does do the rare media thing, which he really does not, um, mm-hmm. only with like one person or like a 60 minutes situation. Um, even those people I've talked to, they can just sense this is, it's not that he's not warm. He's very warm. He's very endearing. He's very kind, very sweet, but you know, he just wants to be in the gym. <laughs> he, he's really not shooting in the gym, that life. And literally, yeah, because that represents so much to him. And it's funny you mentioned the sweat, uh, sweatsuit comment, because as you kind of go through his rookie year, you're painting out the fact that this dude will literally wear sweatpants everywhere and he does not want to do it. And you have various teammates trying to buy him things and he's still kind of yeah. unsure. And I think it was Larry Sanders that had bought him the suit. And he's just like, no, no, yeah. I'm good. like, I don't. And he's like, no, I literally got this for you. You have to wear this. And it's one of those things as well, where so much of the book is about him giving that valuable trust to so few people because he's worried that if he gives it to the wrong person that's the end of his family and he doesn't want to do that because that's the burden of being who he is who he represents to not only his brothers but also his parents so it was really interesting for me because it came back to that narrative of he truly is a family man and more importantly he's a loyal friend and I wanted to use that as a segue to kind of talk about some of the cast of characters that he encountered in Greece in his hometown that kind of watched out for him and one of them was uh, his Pakistani friend Rani or Rana just yeah. talk, to that, talk to that friendship because I think that is so much of a friendship that a lot of the immigrant kids, me being a first generation one myself, kind of had to go through when we first moved to the States. Yeah, so um, Raman Rana is a Pakistani uh, migrant in Greece at the time. He doesn't live in Greece anymore now, but at the time he did. And he too went through you know, awful things with his own family and just did not have a lot of money. At one point they were making the equivalent of like $10 a day. And, um, the coach that found Giannis on the playground is the same mm-hmm. coach that found, um, Rana on the ground. And he was like, you should play for us. You're really tall, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is he gets on the court. He's not very good, but Giannis is like starting to get good. And Giannis and then they, they just hate each other at first. And then they just, they bond, um, unfortunately over shared racism and they yep. start telling each other what others say about them, you know, because, you know, even though they live in a, you know, Sepolia is a neighborhood primarily of immigrants of color, but you know, mm-hmm. and these, teams are like all white and so they're both trying to live in this greek society that does not fully accept them and they're undocumented and they can't travel like their friends do and they can't have the same privileges that their friends do like opening a bank account or you know what have you and so they really have this really tight bond and um i don't know i really just loved talking with the childhood friends because i think that they again nobody's ever done that like i think there's only been you know, little snippets of his life. And it's just, I don't know. I just love, I love seeing who he knew and where he came from, you know, um, favorite anecdote is, is the priest and, and Renan coming to the church. Yes. And, That's you know, Rana is Muslim. Get into that one. Yeah. But you know, Rana is Muslim. And so he's like concerned, like I can't go to the church. And then Giannis 
lies to the priest and is like, my friend is a good Christian boy. Like he's good. He's poor too. Can he eat? And then they both get free meals and Giannis like, see, you got to trust me, bro. So I think it's just little, little anecdotes like that, that just show like, you know, that, that heartwarming personality that Milwaukee fans know. And then here's a glimpse of that from childhood. Yep, and that kindness is something that follows him wherever he ends up in the world. And it was also interesting to me because of the fact that you had mentioned Giannis like lying to the priest. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, he's a very good boy, but he also (laughs) knows the struggle for his guy. And he's going to be that ultimate teammate that we also know a little bit about him to being. And it was just interesting to me because watching him go through this, because to your point, His family has literally been conditioned to give away whatever food they have to make sure everyone eats. And it's just Mm -hmm. something that at times when you see other people do it, it may feel disingenuous, but there is a warmth that radiates through it. And then also to your point of even the rest of his childhood teammates, everybody has some sort of story where they're like, oh, man, I just kept asking if he's hungry. And then after a while, we just said, no, F it. We're going to give you food. This is what you're going to have. And his love of chicken and rice, whether it's his mom's fufu (laughs) or his teammates, mother's chicken and rice, like my man loves chicken and rice. And so that was one of those things. I'm like, okay, whatever he does in life, he should at least get some sort of chicken and rice endorsement because he's done so much for the brand of that one particular meal. Agreed. Yeah, Um, yeah, I I just I think it's really important to highlight the people that helped him and also, you know, in addition, the people that didn't help him. I think there's there's both sides to his story. It's complicated. It's, you know, and it's not one or the other. And he's deeply grateful. Like you see him, he'll just go back to his church and just give backpacks or food. And he doesn't want to make an appearance. The reason why you don't know about it is because he doesn't. He's not like, oh, my God, I'm about to give back. Like, he just does Mm -hmm. it. You know, it's he doesn't want to seem he like really actually does care about people. Yeah. And you mentioned the others that were kind and unkind. I wanted to also use this opportunity. If you could touch on a little bit of I believe his name was Giannis Tzikas, the cafe owner, and like what he did, because that's one of those things where if he's not as big of a basketball fan, I still think he helps out Giannis, but there's that interesting line where I'll let you tell the story about one of the brothers asking him for employment and what does he tell them, right? Yeah, so um, Giannis Sikas is the owner of Kivotos Cafe, which is um, a cafe in, in the neighborhood. And, you know, he notices these boys walking by every day and out little Alex is always holding the basketball. And he's like, I guess they play basketball. And, you know, and he he finally, you know, strikes up camaraderie with them and he ends up being like super kind and like, here's an apple. Here's a, you know, yogurt. Here's a milkshake. And um, the boys go there every day and things got really bad. And Alex told me that, they asked him, like, can we work here? Because, you know, they don't like asking for help. But sometimes when you've done everything you could possibly do and you can't make ends meet, you, you need help. And so um, but Sikas didn't want that because he thought if I gave them work, they're going to stop playing basketball. And he believed they had a future in basketball. Now, it's hard to say how he knew that, why. You know, right. I think there's a lot of, again, revisionist because it's like. Here. Yeah, because it's like, who knew Giannis would become Giannis? Nobody knew that. But I, out of the kindness of this man's heart, whose own father went through, you know, poverty and didn't grow up um, having everything in the world, he had compassion. And he was also um, one of the white Greeks that, you know, really stood up for um, immigrants of color when white patrons would say, why are you feeding the black kids? So, you know, Tsikas was a a really nice ally for them um, because, you know, a lot of people just weren't. Yep. 
And unfortunately, some of those people were a part of this organization that I actually knew nothing about until I started reading a book, and which is The Golden Dawn, which yeah. they sound like a bunch of cheesy bad guys, but they're more startling and chilling in real life. Um, Golden Dawn is a neo-Nazi group, uh, now indicted criminal organization. Um, they, they murder people. They murder immigrants, I should say. They, they are extremely violent. Um, they were prevalent in a lot of the immigrant neighborhoods, such as Sepolia, but other ones like Kipseli and Kos and a couple other places like that. Um, excuse me. And they were, they were vicious and it was terrifying. Um, at the same time, um, they were infiltrating politics. So they were the, at once, you know, one of the members of, of parliament. Um, right. So it wasn't just this like fringe group that patrolled the neighborhoods. Um, and it also wasn't like, you know, the brothers left their houses and they were like, oh, my God, I'm afraid. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like that either. But of course, they were very aware of this group and they were a very, very aware, especially at night, that you couldn't walk alone. Mm-hmm. No, and that was something that kind of rattled me in a sense because we're kind of making sure that even within the USA, like there's a certain demographic where we're kind of conditioned not to wear hoodies at night because we don't know who we're going to run into. And unfortunately, we don't know what they're capable of. And that was one of those things where a lot of the story that you were telling in your book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP, was around the fact that even though this is a world apart, there are so many similar beats. So that concept of Charles making sure that his boys are in sports because it removes the temptation away from doing things that are naughty or bad. Or it's the fact that so many of these teammates that Giannis and Thanos have look out for them because they truly sense something is there. It's something we hear from an American sports perspective a lot, but it's refreshing to see that kindness reigns supreme throughout the world. So that was one thing that I was happy that you were able to articulate again and again, like, hey, this isn't something that we get conditioned to seeing in our like American Disney sports movies. It's something that's prevalent overseas as well. And kindness will hopefully win out whenever something like this happens. So that Golden Dawn thing was probably as much of a downer as this interview is going to be. So I wanted to kind of <laughs> use that to talk about something that's also at the forefront of this book, which is the immigration thing, because a lot of the frustrations that we saw Giannis have was his inability to secure papers to prove he was Greece. And it's frustrating to me because in America, we're conditioned to think that, OK, if somebody's born here, they're an American citizen. But in Greece, it doesn't work that way necessarily. No, and it doesn't work that way in a lot of countries. Um, Birthright citizenship is not a thing. And um, so essentially he was not viewed as Greek, even though he grew up speaking Greek, Greek friends, Greek schools, Greek churches, Greek sidewalk, Greek everything. He was just a black person to a lot of people there and a foreigner. And um, to see the way the Greek, I I ended up interviewing the prime minister at the time. um, And yeah, and seeing how he just kept dodging like, you know, I basically was like, you only gave him the papers because he was about to be in the NBA. And they were like, well, right. it certainly helped. But no, seeing the trajectory of this, it, they dragged their feet and dragged their feet. And then it became clear that he had this offer from the Spanish team. And, you know, scouts are coming to Greece, like perhaps he could go to the NBA. Then they changed their tune. But again, they didn't give citizenship to Veronica. They didn't give citizenship to um, Alex. They didn't give citizenship to Costa. So, you know, at the end of the day, like, they could have done that, but they didn't. And so I I hope people will appreciate that. I also charted the journey of other undocumented um, black Greek migrants uh, that were friends with Giannis growing up, whose lives have completely diverged because they did not get their citizenship papers fast tracked 
by the end of the book, you will see that they are still trying to get their papers. Um, And so it's trying to show like that could have been Giannis if he was not Giannis. Yeah. I mean, it's so much of that is that golden ticket methodology, right? Like he just met the right person and he was able to do the right task at the right time that he eventually got it. But even to say like, it wasn't overnight for him. It goes back to the 10 years of patience, 10, uh, 10 minutes of progress or whatever the quote is. And I hope people, if nothing else, if you buy this book and you should buy this book, (laughs) remember that quote. And then you can correct me if anybody ever sees me out and about and be like, you genius. It was this quote. The other thing that was interesting to me was once the one scout who saw Giannis, it was almost like the gold rush of like the 18 whenevers because everybody's like, let's go to Greece. Let's figure this kid out. And you chart a lot of different teams kind of going through that journey. I think the funniest thing I could think of was when Danny Ainge visited one of his games and (laughs) I believe was it the fan that the Nikes crowd was chanting Lakers at him. And he was like, this is hilarious to me. But so much of our revisionist takes, especially when it comes to the NBA draft, or the NFL draft is, oh, this great player that was drafted in the middle of the round, we knew he was good. We just didn't have the opportunity to take him. And something that I'd always thought was Milwaukee was the only one all in on this. But you had mentioned there's another team that kind of hitched their wagon, so to speak, to Giannis. Talk a little bit about Atlanta's involvement, because reading this book, I'm still surprised they somehow let him slip through their fingers. Yeah, I know. Well, one thing I hope people appreciate is there's a lot of um, secret meetings in foreign countries with Atlanta and Giannis's team. And so I hope people enjoy that. I won't spoil that. Um, Atlanta really wanted him, like really, really wanted him. And um, but it's still so painful to this day that it did not happen, that it took me like months to get Danny Ferry, the GM, to talk on the record. So, you know, um, it's still painful for him. But another um executive who did not want to go on the record was saying that, um, we just didn't fight hard enough, basically. Like we, 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 we probably had the highest evaluation on him, but we didn't get it done. Um, -hmm. because they did, they really, they flew him out there. People did not know it was a secret to so many, even within the organization. And, um, just was talking with staffers that were there and, um, remembered that. And it was so stressful because they were so afraid somebody would see that Giannis was in Atlanta. So, um, what made all of this really troubling for everyone is that, um, like Milwaukee did not have his physical, um, but Atlanta did. And so the Bucks took an enormous risk drafting someone that they did not know their medical history, which is insane. So mm-hmm. again, like I hate to plug the title, but improbable, right? Every part of it is improbable. So many things have to go right for him. And I keep yeah. wondering, like, oh no, this is going to be the moment where there's going to be that setback because we're so conditioned to that. And yeah. it was just... Even though we're, what, five years, ten years removed almost from him getting drafted, I still had that, like, gulp in my throat. Like, something's going to happen. Like, they're going to take his citizenship away. He's going to go back to Greece. And no, no, everything went as it was supposed to, and he gets drafted to Milwaukee. And I thought that was probably as interesting of a place for him to get drafted, considering what their club history is. Because very rarely do you see a club have a transcendent player. And Milwaukee was fortunate that they had Lou Alcindor. But as you kind of have alluded to in other spaces as well, 
that Lua and Alcindor divorce from Milwaukee was probably as messy of a divorce as something that that state has encountered, especially considering how loyal that fan base is to some of the other clubs like the Green Bay Packers. But talk about that backlash and that stigma that kind of haunted that city for the longest time, even through what was, I think, one Eastern Conference Finals run in 2001, where you had the Milwaukee Bucks with Glenn Robinson, Sam Cassell and Ray Allen. Yeah, so I, I thought it was really important to ground the history of the Bucks in this book and really, you know, started even before Kareem, just this idea that like basketball could not work in Milwaukee because originally the team then left for Atlanta. And so there's always been this theme of leaving, right? Mm-hmm. The team leaves, the player, the generational player, Kareem leaves. That is a wound that is traumatic for decades. And then there's this looming threat that the Bucks will leave for the next several decades because they don't have a good arena. It's tiny, it's decrepit, whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's always this threat of leaving. And so, you know, it's this place where, you know, stars might start out, but they're going to leave us. They're not going to stay. And so I really thought it was important to show Kareem and Giannis almost as like parallel images of each other. I don't mean in terms of game because they're completely different players, but I just mean in terms of like what they represent to Milwaukee, which is hope. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been funny for me. Well, not funny, but it's been interesting, like watching commercials that have like old photos of Kareem in the finals now, because that was literally such a big part of the book of like, wow, the generational player finally stayed, you know, it's, it's been an open wound for so long. Yeah, it's something I think you had mentioned that generations inherent from the previous generations, which goes back to that whole theme of family legacy. And if I'm a third generation Milwaukeeite, and it's one of those things where it's like if I hear my grandfather wax poetic about how great Lou Alcindor was, but then he gets the yeah, but he left us for L.A. So much of that feeling in middle America is like, I'm just trying to bide my time here until I can go to one of the two coasts and like do my thing and really shine the way I know I am. And I thought it was interesting because Giannis for so much of his life has been uprooted so many times that in hindsight, it makes sense that he stayed because he finally got that stability that he so often craved. And it was one of those things where as you kind of chart his rookie year and we go through those adorable stories that you hear so much about, he finally got to be a little brother. And I thought that was really powerful because of the fact that so much of his life, especially in Greece, was being the de facto big brother, being that kind of authoritative voice that nobody questions. It's just Giannis is telling us to do this. We do this. And then you get to finally see him be spoiled in a sense because you have random Bucks staffers kind of with him at all times. And there's that very beautiful story that you tell in the book about the video I forgot what his last name is or his first name. It was Geiger, but he's basically has to do his job. And Giannis is not letting him go because he just, I think, wanted that warmth of another human being that we so crave for. And he was feeling so lonely because at the time his family wasn't readily there. But one thing that was a little bit lighter was this NBA buzzword we hear a lot about. Talk to us about the floppy story, because I think that is a brilliant kind of encapsulation of some of the communication breakdown that happens that we take for granted as, I guess, native English speakers, because it's something we think of as almost like a throwaway line. But for Giannis, it was something much more than that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm laughing because that story just it's so funny and I'm doing the audio book and I had to narrate that. And it's like so embarrassing because I'm trying to channel my like, you know, Don't call me floppy. Okay, so basically, um, there's this play called Floppy, and 
the Bucks coaches are like, run floppy, floppy. And they're just saying the word. Giannis thinks they're calling him floppy because he does not have great English. And he thinks that they're making fun of him, saying he's scrawny or floppy. Yes. And so, you know, he's just so angry. He's just like seething. And he goes up to his assistant coach, um, Josh Oppenheimer, who is now, again, an assistant coach with the team. And he's like, um, coach, like, why are they calling me floppy? I'm not floppy. And he's just like so pissed. And then the coach is like, Giannis, like, it's a play. And then Giannis like, so they're not calling me floppy. And then he's like, no, it's a play. And Giannis like, oh, okay. Okay. And then he goes back to the line. It's just so innocent, you know, but it's again, like Larry Drew told me, he's like, I would have to say things over and over. Cause I just knew it was just going way past him. But, um, totally love the floppy anecdote. One of my faves. Yeah, no, I, it was just hilarious because you also kind of mentioned that anytime he would learn a new word, he would just say it over and over and over. Yeah. And, over. <laughs> yeah. and I thought it was just like, okay, like I get it. Like you guys are calling me floppy. And, right. yeah, and in spite right. of all that, like he still has this childlike exuberance to his game, but also his emotions. And I always thought that was the secret sauce of basketball and similar to soccer in the sense that it's that rare sport where there isn't anything that's hiding the face so you get to watch them play the game but then you also get to see the theater of the mind and the theater of the emotions and i literally every time he does something and he makes that scowling face it's not like the mamba mentality scowling face it's more i always describe it to a five-year-old wanting to show you how tough he is and i mean that in the most respectful <laughs> way assuming yeah. he listens to this podcast but he always has that childlike exuberance and it was funny because when i was doing the research for this interview i stumbled upon a clip where he was talking about kobe's influence on him and he was mm -hmm. asking kobe for some advice and kobe said be a kid and i'm wondering mm -hmm. now did that seep subconsciously and what kobe meant by being a kid is just constantly be on that thirst to learn be present in the moment and just always hold everybody including yourself accountable and i thought these are similar tenets to what his dad kind of preached to him so it's reassuring to see that okay maybe i'm not the only one that's seeing this but what do you make of Giannis sometimes because he when he wants to be can be very formidable but then he has these moments where he resorts back to like this childlike innocence yeah i mean you have to i i mean i'm older than Giannis. like i just turned 30 like that is like he's a young man you know like yes. that's just like He's still, I mean, yes, he's a father, but like he's growing into his own as an adult. You know, I think obviously he's a global icon, but people forget he's what, like mid 20s now? Like oh, yeah. that, like, I don't want to see myself at 26, you know? So like, of course, like there's these moments, you know, but um, I think uh, to your point earlier about like, just he, it's hard. <laughs> I love that he doesn't he, he obviously takes himself very seriously, but I yes. love that he's like so funny because I think that that is why he's so endearing to people yes. because there is that layer of like, you know, be a kid, be curious. You know, um, one of my favorite interviews was with Jared Dudley and um, mm -hmm. because Jared was a mentor to him that one year that Jared was in Milwaukee in 2014 to 15. Okay. And Jared was telling me that like, what he loved and still loves about Giannis is that there's no ego. So like the reason why he doesn't get flustered is because he doesn't have an ego. And so you could just tell he was socialized different, you know? And so 
he's not afraid to like make fun of himself. Like there's a, there's a funny anecdote. I don't know if you got to this part yet, but they're like shooting and they have to make a three. And so they don't run or something. This is in the Jason Kidd era. And Giannis, like, he's like, okay, let me like shoot it. I'm going to do it. And then he airballs the three, but he starts laughing. Everybody's laughing and he, he's laughing hardest. You know, if I airballed a three in front of my teammates, like for the, you know, drill, I would be like so embarrassed, but he's just not, he's able to laugh at himself, you know? Exactly. And it goes back to the earliest uh, discussion we were having where it's just a different type of mentality and a different way of being raised. We can admit that weakness and we use that term softness and soft skills are as essential to whatever your technical skills are, regardless of your occupation. It's just like, how well do you handle that criticism? How well do you handle temporary or more permanent setbacks? goes a long way in terms of people confiding in you or believing in you. And as we know, like trust is important as or rather it's as important as the skills a basketball player shows because if we're down two and we need two free throws to make and i know that seems to be the latest bugaboo of Giannis is the 10 second count he still maintains it and you can see especially in the last game like he was kind of enjoying the fact that people are counting to him and i think that only proved to be well for him because he's definitely not one to let that ego get in the way and i'll use the example of the ben simmons thing where Giannis and Ben Simmons are almost at a similar career point in their trajectory. And it's just one is unwilling to shoot because there's that ego component of it. Whereas Giannis, as the book kind of tells us, and as we see in person now, is he is a fan of repetition. He's going to keep going and keep going and keep going until he figures it out or he figures some sort of counter out that allows him that similar success. And that's where one thing to me is I will never bet against this guy if you give him enough time. And that's, I think, going to be his biggest weapon but I also worry because let's use the finals now and we'll just do a quick kind of wrap up on the finals is I worry about the injury just because of the fact that he doesn't have enough time to assert his will and granted he looked good in game one but I'm sure you've probably watched more Giannis tape than anybody in recent memory like how is he looking to you especially considering that severity of that hyperextended knee yeah I mean that was like so awful to watch and I just don't understand why we keep replaying it I'm like haunted by this clip but um you know he's had like various knee I wouldn't say like injuries but like soreness this has been like a thing not saying the exact type you know the exact knee the exact but yeah of course like he's dealt with that and like you know, his conditioning has been an issue for a while. It's something people don't really talk about. He always looks gassed. Like, I mean, Jason Kidd used to play him to the bare bones. Like, he looked mm-hmm. like he could not stand up in some of those playoff games back then. So I think that's just always going to be there. And I don't know if that's related to, like, anything knee-wise. I'm not going to speak on something that I'm not yeah. a medical expert and I don't, I'm not privy to. So, you know, I don't have expertise there. But just from this, like, Again, we talked about the mental toughness. He's always going to compete. I just don't know enough about his current situation to comment on it, but he will always compete. And I think you saw that. Yeah. I mean, he is going to be that epitome of dying on the sword and I want him to win. I mean, I, I tend to be a neutral when it comes to all things NBA. I just love the entire league, but I am probably pulling for him a little bit more just because I want to see him not turn into a Charles Barkley or John Stockton type figure where he's a great player, but he never wins one. 
And he's had, I would say, bittersweet luck because LeBron finally left the Eastern Conference, but then KD and Kyrie were here, but now they've been injured the last couple of years. So I'm hoping he can get the one title at the bare minimum to just validate whatever debates we have about rings mattering, because I think in the grand scheme of things, rings shouldn't matter as much as they do, but alas, I'm just one voice in a voice of millions. And yeah, I mean, I want the happy ending to be there. So when you read the paperback edition of Giannis, the improbable rise of the MVP, you get to have that nice epilogue where he's like, you know what, Giannis finally did it. And it's one of those things where I can see him getting that championship, being satisfied in the moment, and then realizing, okay, what can I do to get Greece that gold medal? Because that yeah. Olympic history, I'm sure, is going to be weighing on him. But we're at about 45 minutes. We usually like to cut off, but I will give you the floor for the last hour long you need, Marin. What else do you want people to know about the book and Giannis as a whole? Because I think it's a great book. I'm telling all my friends right now to buy it, so I'm hoping to give you a quasi-Oprah bump. But please, the floor is yours. Oh, man. Well, first, I would just like to say thank you for that and for spreading the word and, and being so kind. Like, it, it just, it really means so much to me. Um, I hope that people appreciate that I wrote this in a pandemic and it's been a hard year and yes. I worked so hard and I did not get book leave like most authors. And I, um, I only had one year to do it. Most authors get two years. I worked really, really hard. And in a day and age where long form reporting is not valued, I hope that you see the value in taking time to like really dig into a subject. And, you know, what I hope you come away with is that um, sometimes even superstars who are as big as Giannis, there are aspects about them that are very humanizing and universal. And I think that even if you know nothing about basketball, there's something in here that you can relate to. The closest people to me know nothing about basketball. And they, I mean, I don't know if they just read it because they want to humor me and they, they love me because they're my besties, but they don't know anything and they read it and they took something away from it. So yeah, I just, I hope that you give it a shot and I also hope that you pre-order it. Um, you know, pre-orders like really matter um, to an author's, you know, sales and success. And um, I always feel really uncomfortable plugging myself. It's been really strange, like doing media, because if you notice in my stories, I am not present. I like to be in the background. So I just appreciate you having me on and, and helping me promote. Of course. No, I mean, uh, to your point, long form journalism is essential when you get to the humanity of people. And I think so much of what a lot of us enjoy about your writing is empathy and vulnerability are not some things we usually attribute with sports profiles, but you do as great of a job of championing that and showcasing that these are not flaws. They are just characteristics of humans and mm -hmm. we need to celebrate those. So thank you for mm -hmm. that. Thank uh, you. Uh, once again, August 10th, Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP. Uh, where can people follow you on social media if they want to just keep an eye on whatever you're going to be pitching next? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's just my first and last name, uh, which is spelled M-I-R-I-N-F-A-D-E-R. -E and um, I have all my work on my website, which is just firstandlastname.com. So, yeah, thank you for supporting me. And that would be awesome. Of course. Thank you. All right, everybody. We've taken enough of your time. Uh, we'll <laughs> see you in the next episode. Hope all is well. And thank you. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, this is Nick again. Before you take off, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. We just launched our new merch, including tees, stickers, keychains, and a bunch of other pieces you can grab to show your support for the podcast. You can purchase it now through our companion site, sittingtreasure.com. You can also get access to more episodes of the podcast by joining our Discord community at patreon.com slash sneakerhistory. Plus, we've got a bunch of other fun things going on in the community, including trivia nights, giveaways, access to sneaker raffles from around the world, release announcements, and just in general, good people helping good people get the sneakers they want. Plus, we're not bought by advertisers, investors, or other big money. I'm confident in saying that we are the best sneaker community for people truly passionate about sneakers. We've also teamed up with a few partners to offer our supporters access to exclusive discounts. You can find some of those in the links in the description for this episode and even more in our Discord. Give us a try, and if you don't enjoy it, you can always cancel the membership at any time. As always, thank you for rocking with us, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question, and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.